are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. In the 1970s, Frederick Beekner published a series of four novels, Lion Country, Open Heart, Love Feast, and Treasure Hunt all dealing with an eccentric sort of evangelist named Beb and his Bible-teaching associate, Brownie. They are, I'd have to say, rather odd and often quirky novels, comic, yet deeply insightful and at times almost tragic. Now, I'm not going to give you an overview of all four novels here tonight, but rather just offer a glimpse of Brownie, the Bible teacher. Brownie is a likable figure for whom the reader instantly has sympathy. A little lost, certainly overshadowed by Beb, and ultimately quite sad. Brownie consistently shows this ability to somehow make any biblical passage, any one at all, sound somehow positive and affirming. There's an episode in Lion Country where Beb and Brownie are leading a church service, and Brownie is called upon to teach on the story in Matthew 18 where Jesus gathers the children round himself and then looks to the disciples and warns them that rather than cause one of these children to sin, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened round your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. This is how Beekner summarizes Brownie's teaching on that passage. He writes, In explicating the passage, Brownie drew attention, as might have been expected, to some facts about the ancient world that illuminated the meaning and prevented the possibility of certain obvious misunderstandings. In the time of Jesus, Brownie pointed out, the grain was of such poor quality and so easily pulverized that millstones were often made of a very light, porous stone resembling pumice. The stone was indeed so unusually aerated, almost in the manner of styrofoam, that combined with the fact that the salt content of the Dead Sea was so notoriously high that even fat men could float in it like corks, A millstone around the neck might, under certain circumstances, serve the function of a life preserver. And this was clearly what the passage intended, Brownie argued, which is, of course, utter hogwash. But, as a preacher faced with challenging texts, I'm often reminded of Brownie. I think of him regularly. And I am grateful to Frederick Beekner, who was not only a writer and novelist, but also an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church, 
I'm grateful to him for creating a character who sort of gently pokes at my side when I'm at all tempted to try to sidestep the toughness of a text. And I'm sure you heard the toughness. Whoever comes to me and does not hate, hate, Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. The version of this teaching from Luke that's carried by Matthew is considerably milder. Jesus says, those who love family members more than they love him are not worthy of him. But we're in Luke and are confronted with how Luke sought to convey the person and teachings of Jesus. Why did he take hold of such a strong and troubling word as hate? In the Greek, meseo. Well, for one thing, that's what Luke had been taught that Jesus had actually said. Remember, Luke was not a disciple. He was not a first-hand witness to the life of Jesus, but rather a person who came to faith later and who had traveled with Paul during the last portion of his journeys. Luke was close in time to Jesus' life and would have inherited written texts and oral stories from those who had walked with Jesus, and he would have preserved what he received with great care and Like all of the writers of the Gospels, Luke brought his own overarching sense of Jesus to his Gospel project. So, let's first ask the question as to why Jesus would have taught that in order to be a disciple, one would need to hate father, mother, wife, children, and so forth. Here I turn to Carolyn Sharp. She's a professor of Hebrew scriptures at Yale Divinity School. Quote, in the Jewish traditions, hate is used regularly of the animosity between actual enemies, to be sure. But it is also used in binary wisdom aphorisms, employing love and hate as paradigmatic responses of discernment. The the wicked are said to hate discipline, justice, and knowledge, while the righteous hate wickedness, falsehood, and gossip. Luke is not advocating intense hostility toward kin and life, but rather is promoting the steadfast refusal to allow something less valuable to displace something more valuable. John Carroll observes that in Luke, the priority of the realm of God is pictured in the most extreme terms imaginable. Jesus is challenging listeners to embrace a singular commitment and allegiance to him. Close quote. Jesus is standing in the traditions of Judaism, drawing on those teaching methods 
and styles of discourse to make a very clear and admittedly rather tough point, namely that those disciples and we with them are called upon to have an extraordinary allegiance to all that Jesus is and all that he does. For the disciples, that meant quite literally walking right to Gethsemane with him. Oh, of course, they stumbled there in Gethsemane, didn't they? And three times Peter denied even knowing Jesus, but in the resurrection light and under the fire of Pentecost, those disciples exploded into a life of singular commitment and allegiance to him. I would also say it's important to further reflect on two things that we do know from the Gospels. Firstly, earlier in Luke's account, Jesus had said quite clearly that my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This was, you might remember, at a time when Mary and Jesus' brothers were trying to get through the crowds to him, and at least in Mark's telling, to take him home before he got himself in much trouble. And yet, even though he seems somewhat dismissive of his real mother and brothers, and turns to those who are following him and says, you're my family, and yet, Mary is there at the crucifixion. And in John's telling, Jesus entrusts Mary to the familiar care of the beloved disciple, John. Mary is also there with the disciples in the opening portion of the book of Acts, along with Jesus' brothers. For all of the force of the teaching today about hating family, Jesus' own family remains very much faithful and very much present. Secondly, it's interesting to see how Luke places this hard teaching in the overall flow of his telling of the gospel. It's not a bad thing when you face any text to look at what comes right before, at what comes right after, because these gospel writers were actually artists and they constructed a whole. Well, right after tonight's gospel, we have three parables, three of the most beloved parables, in fact. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal and his father. In that latter parable, we have the most extraordinary picture of a parent's love for a child. And it's meant to tell us something about the love of God for us, all of us, whether we are more like the prodigal, who makes such a royal mess of things, or perhaps more like the older brother, who has his nose so high in the air he can't quite make his way into the feast that his father is throwing to welcome his brother back home. Here is the most germane moment 
in the opening portion of that parable. Having gone off with half of the inheritance money, and remember, his father hasn't died. So his father has given up the inheritance money while he is yet alive. The bankrupt son, having blown it all, begins to mull. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And off he heads for home, his tail between his legs and this plea for mercy rolling on his tongue. And then Luke writes, But while he was far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to me, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He gets out just the first half or so of his rehearsed speech. That's his confession of guilt. That's all the father wants. That's all the father needs. So the prodigal never manages to blurt out the rest of the speech, treat me like one of your hired hands, which rather than being a confession of guilt, is an expression of shame. And the father will have none of it. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now we also read today from Jeremiah. Perhaps here it is worth recalling his image of the potter and the clay. As N.T. Wright summarizes the image, quote, the clay was being put back on the wheel to be reworked into another vessel. Same clay, new pot. A vital, teasing image of the continuity and discontinuity that comes when God's chosen and beloved people rebel. The potter is not arbitrary or whimsical, but is responding in creative love to the failure of the first pot. And so it is with us who are called to follow with a singular commitment and allegiance to our Lord, yet trusting that when we stumble, and we will stumble, we do, he will, in his steadfast compassion, pick us up, dust us off, put us back on our feet again, or in Jeremiah's terms, keep remolding the clay that is our lives until we become the vessels he most desires us to be. And that, people, is gospel, pure and simple. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.